This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. All right, welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. Uh, my name is Zarar. Uh, it's our first podcast in quite some time. I think after the season sort of ended uh, with the Raptors losing their last seven, I think, and ending the season one and nine, uh, sort of took a break from uh, from Raptor talk and focused on the NBA playoffs a little bit. Uh, we'll talk We'll talk about Kawhi in a bit. And um, uh, joining me today is James Keast, who uh, is the former editor of Exclaim Mag. And uh, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you have definitely seen him appear on the Talking Raptors podcast with Nick and Barry. Uh, shout out to Nick and Barry. Uh, they must be happy uh, because uh, the city's opening up. That means comedy's back. That means clubs are back. So all that good stuff uh, is happening. Uh, but today we have James Keys. Hey, James. Hey, Zarar. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get to the Raptors talk, I, I, gotta, I know we were talking offline a little bit. Uh, the move to Nova Scotia. Yes, the, you are. I mean, we always speak. Of, we always hear of people kind of like, uh, you know, enough of Toronto, whether it be COVID inspired or whatever it be. You kind of move out to a quieter place, a saner place, certainly a more cost effective place, something that I have thought of multiple times uh, over the last few years. But congratulations to you. You actually did it. Yeah. After 26 years in Toronto. So my wife, Allison, is from the East Coast and uh, her family is out here. And so it was sort of always in the vague future plan that we would eventually settle out here. And then after the last 15 months, you really just start to evaluate how you're living. And, you know, we just realized like we could move to a small town in Nova Scotia and um, not have any access to any of the exciting things that we enjoy in the city, uh, but do so much more cheaply. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm in quarantine for a couple of weeks, so uh, I haven't really been able to enjoy any of Nova Scotia yet. But uh, we've spent a lot of time out here, and, and I'm really excited about uh, the the prospect of a quieter life out here. Yeah, I, I heard they got a bunch of lighthouses there, uh, and that, that always shows up on the tourism brochures. But but I know that you, ha- you had uh, trouble getting into the border. I, I didn't know Nova Scotia had such tight border security. It's like getting into Fallujah. It was pretty crazy. Uh, they weren't going to let us in. We, uh, by all of our accounting, we fit all of the criteria and the rules, and they just kept arbitrarily saying no. And so I just uh, got my Karen on and decided, I just started, like, I called the premier's office. I called the local, like, uh, provincial representation office of, like, where we will be. I'm like, I'm going to be a constituent. You need to take care of me. And so whatever, whatever worked. The other thing that's crazy is they're opening up the province in a few weeks. So I don't know why they're being so strict about a, a couple of innocent Ontarians. Hey, could, could it be because they have maybe like uh, an ICU capacity of four people? That could be it. Or they're just anti-Upper Canadians in general. Okay, okay. Uh, I think that they, they probably smelt the uh, Toronto stench on you. Mm. And they're like, we want, we want none of this. Almost certainly. <laughs> 
All right, man. Let's uh, let's let's talk some Raptors. That's what we're here for. Uh, I, I'm a little rusty talking Raptors too because I haven't done that in a in, in a month or so. I've been watching the NBA playoffs, um, which I'm sure you have as well, or at least following it. Uh, let's start with Kawhi Leonard. Uh, I, I wrote a post the other day just saying that it's it's very difficult for me to get on board the let's cheer or, or let's root actively against the Clippers. Uh, because Kawhi snubbed us and blah blah blah. Uh, I mean, I I, I I sort of tried, but I, I I wouldn't I didn't last more than like a day because it didn't feel natural to me because uh, I still have a immense amount of gratitude towards the guy for delivering what he did while he was in Toronto. So even though yeah, that Clippers team has Paul George and a bunch of other unlikable guys, I still can't find myself. Uh, kind of actively rooting against Kawhi. Where, where are you on that? Uh, I, I'm absolutely a Kawhi fan, and I will be a Kawhi fan for life. I don't think as a basketball fan you can watch him play in the with the level of intensity that we as Raptors fans watched him for a year and then just somehow dismiss his skills and, and brilliance as a basketball player. Like, it, it strikes me that it, that's an anti-basketball fan thing to do. It's weird I mean, I understand the emotional tie. I have had moments of wanting Kawhi to regret his basketball decisions, but I can't begrudge his... That That wasn't... I, I think on its face, it wasn't a basketball decision. I think that's clear. If he, on pure basketball terms, he never would have left. So he made the decision for other reasons, for personal reasons and because of you know lifestyle reasons, which clearly I can respect. Uh, having made such radical choices myself recently. And so I absolutely will uh, admire and and will enjoy watching Kawhi for uh, the rest of his career. Uh, There is part of me that does enjoy the ridiculous narrative of failure that follows certain teams. So I enjoy watching the Clippers fail because the Clippers are a failure of a franchise. (laughs) And I just think it's funny, like over however many years and different owners and coaches and players, I'm fascinated by the idea that there's somehow a culture of failure embedded into certain organizations. And because for a lot of years, we secretly suspected that the Raptors might be one of those. Uh, Then, you you know, to see them sort of burst through and, and overcome and finally like have that success, like there's really kind of nothing better in sports than watching just years of futility. And I'm, I'm fascinated by how they can, the futile franchises can manage to uh, fail in new and interesting and unexpected ways. So I'm curious about that. Like, I'm just curious, like how are the Clippers going to make it? Like, are they going to stumble in a, like the three, one last year, was really like that was un- an unexpected stumble. I didn't. I didn't really think that that was going to happen. So it was a. It was a new way for them to fail. But I don't want Kawhi to fail. I want Kawhi to you know have everything that he deserves. Yeah, and, and when you look at the post-title fortunes of of both the Warriors and the Raptors, um, you know, talking about futility, uh, the Warriors obviously hit rock bottom, sort of with the with the injuries they had, and they 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 hit the floor pretty pretty hard there. And the Raptors have sort of survived and they've managed to avoid that collapse because they've had a fairly decent core 
beyond um, Kawhi. And as we saw, the, you know, the year after he left, we lost the Celtics in seven games. And this year, we started off okay, but sort of the season just kind of went away from us with the health issues, with the COVID issues, with Siakam and the injuries. Uh, you know, a lot could be said about how Nick Nurse managed the lineups or what, whether whether he really was smart enough in how he tried to find lineups that worked. It sort of felt like he was experimenting throughout the season. Uh, there wasn't a moment where the team sort of settled into any sort of rhythm where said, well, this is sort of our rotation going forward and we'll work around it. How much of that was was just the circumstance of the season and how much of it was Nick Nurse's itch to experiment? I don't think that the the crazy circumstances can be overstated from, I mean, the COVID to Tampa. I mean, doing playing an entire season of road games is crazy. The fact that that only was settled like two weeks before the season was going to start and they suddenly had to be there. I'm amazed that we had the success that we did this year. And part of it, I think, was part of the confusion was we, I think, at our core, have a 50-win team core. And then uh, when March, I mean, and, and we were on that track and everything was good. And, and you know, there, there were some funky roster choices that were made at center in particular at the beginning of the year that I think Nick Nurse was struggling with but once March hit then I think it was it just derailed the whole that one in 13 or whatever we went in March derailed the whole season and I think from there I I think that it was a little bit of a schizophrenic vision of of what we wanted to do moving forward uh and I think because I think we realized like oh we could win you know probably half our games moving forward but also we don't want to, you know, they, the idea, you know, Masai saying like play in for what I, I think he realized like, this is kind of a lost season. Uh, so what are we fighting for? And that I think just kind of messed with who the team was in the last two months. You know, uh, I, I think, I think the whole franchise was intellectually and emotionally prepared to say goodbye to Kyle and then when that didn't happen, everybody was like, well, now what? And and then it just turned into the weird sort of half tank right at the end. Yeah, you didn't know what the purpose or the goal of the last third of the season or the last, well, yeah, the last third of the season really was because uh, it, the, the team was resting healthy players in games that were very meaningful if you wanted to make the postseason uh, at the same time, they had not traded Kyle and retained him, but retained him for what exactly? It was unclear. I guess they didn't get enough on the market for him, so they said, why not keep him? But that also was sort of unfair to Kyle because you almost forced him to play on a lottery team when he could have been playing on a uh, on a playoff contender. So I, I thought it was a bit unfair to Kyle how we processed that that trade deadline and it probably cost Kyle at least a shot at I'm not saying he's, he's going to win a ring with the, with the, with the Sixers or whatever, but I'm saying it cost him a shot at another, at a ring basically, whether it be with the Sixers or somebody else that didn't add up for me. Yeah. Uh, 
I think it's, I can only assume that it, what, what was weird is when he stuck around and then it was like, oh, in fact, you're not even going to play on a slaughtery bound team. You're just going to sit. Uh, I, I think the play was, the idea of the play was we value you so highly that we would like you to consider your future with the franchise moving forward beyond a, th- a two or three year deal with a contender. We would like, we would like to open a conversation to a cheaper deal, a transition to coaching, uh, a, a long-term relate, you know, a, a Dirk-esque secret handshake long-term future with the franchise. And I think the right thing to do for that is to overvalue him in terms of we're not going to trade you for nothing. We're not going to trade you for a bag of beans. And we didn't get it, but that, puts him in an awkward position as a player where it's like, Oh, actually um, sure. We really value you next year and moving forward. But in fact, you're far too good to play on this team right now because uh, you know, we don't want to, we don't want the 10th seed. We don't want the eighth seed. We, we would like the seventh pick is what we would like. So that turned awkward, and I I would assume that conversations were had with Kyle, and he understood that that's what the prospect was. And I think if he had said, like, I definitely want out this trade deadline, then they would have made that decision. I think it's a gamble on consider how, let, consider how much the franchise values you when making decisions moving forward. And and so I think it was just a, a small deposit in that bank, and we'll see what you know what he wants to do moving forward. And and part of the rationale of keeping him, um, or, or one of the incentives of keeping him, maybe was uh, like there were only so many buyers at the trade deadline, but at the in the off season, you also have the sign and trade option available to trade him. So the number of teams that might be interested kind of opens up. And now you can do salary matching and things like those to maybe facilitate a better deal. So, so if they if they have no intention of keeping him, then maybe uh, you know a sign in trade could be in order. And certainly, uh, hearing from Kyle in his uh, postseason press conference, he definitely, I definitely got the sense that he disagreed with the decision to retain him and would have preferred being shipped out. Um, uh, you know, Kyle's too professional of a guy to out, outright say those words. But if you do read between the lines, you know, it's like, it's not my decision. You got to trust somebody, blah, blah, blah. I definitely got a, got a piece of that in there. But but here's the thing, though. If he does come back next year, the lead man on this franchise is uh, Pascal Siakam. Yes. Where, where are you on the, on the Siakam front? Um, I mean, the general opinion seems to be he's not a not a top tier player, but a very very good player who needs somebody better than him to lead us to the next step. Much like how Demar Derozan wasn't the main guy or Kyle Lowry wasn't the main guy, they needed an elite level talent to kind of lift the entire team. How do you evaluate Siakam as a as a as, as a player, both currently and kind of project him out for me a little bit? Uh, I think I still think that he has the potential to become an, a number one offensively and and defensively. I like I think I think he still he had a really like with the bubble and then last year. I I feel like he got a really kind of beaten up emotionally and and um, 
in terms of his confidence. And so I fully expect him to return. But I think what's been really illustrative, uh, especially because we've all watched Kawhi struggle to take the Clippers to the promised land, that it's required everyone to reevaluate the narrative that Kawhi single-handedly brought the Raptors their title. And the curious thing is that I think people have realized now that Kawhi can be your best player, but he can't be your leader. And that's what the Clippers are facing now, where he is he is the best player on the team, but he is by default the leader of the Clippers. There isn't another leader on the Clippers. Whereas, like, clearly Kawhi was the best player, but clearly this was Kyle's team and has been Kyle's team for a while. And I think Pascal has the potential to be the number one as a player, but not necessarily the leader of the team. And I, I think that we just need to recognize that these, those are two different roles. And so is he on the elite level of like the top 15 guys in the, in the league? No, he's, and I don't know that he will get there, but I think, uh, you know, a, we know how hard those guys are to get. And I think that there are very few teams who have the core, the, the strong young core under contract for the, the price that we have, Pascal, OG, and Fred. And the the prospects of those three are kind of better than almost any other sort of young core three that that most teams in the NBA have that aren't playing paying three max players. Yeah. And, and I'd say that like if you if you play around with the trade deadline or, or the trade machine realistically, you really can't come up with any trade where Pascal isn't the best player in that trade. Yeah. Right. And, and it's, it's a, the old adage goes, well, the, 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 the trade is won by the team who acquires the best player. So I'm always hesitant, hesitant to trade proven talent. And I'm, I'm also leaning towards giving him the benefit of the doubt of the bubble. And uh, this year with COVID and, and, and the season that was, and now he's out for five months with a, with a, uh, with after surgery. So, he has another obstacle to overcome next year. So it, it's not even clear that when next season starts, we will see the Siakam that we would have ideally liked to see. That's probably a further three to four months out, depending on how he recovers from um, uh, from his injury. So it, it's sort of frustrating and also n- not disappointing, but it's just I'm impatient, um, I, I guess, to see the real Pascal. Yeah. For the past year and a half or so, We've seen a modified kind of hacked down version of Pascal. And now we have to wait a little bit longer to see what he really can do. So his, I'd say his evaluation window keeps getting further and further away. Yeah. Uh, So so let's talk about another guy that the Raptors acquired. Norman Powell was, you know, obviously a big part of the championship team. Uh, He was a free agent. The, 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 The Raptors trading him away was sort of understandable because from a salary perspective, we couldn't really pay him. Uh, the guy coming back, Gary Trent Jr., what impressions did he make uh, on you in, in, in the time um, in his time with the Raptors? Well, the first impression was that he seemed very excited to come to the Raptors, and uh, particularly that the Raptors have are starting to have a different reputation in the league than we used to. And uh, just from a young guy who you know had seen, you know, just 
recognized a uh, you know our our social justice uh, sort of forward social justice messaging that he really appreciated and recognized. Uh, you know, to know that that's being noticed around the league, I thought was really good. Uh, and then just the idea of of you know a championship culture and recognizing that Nick Nurse and Masai and and you know the core that's been built here that there's uh, that there's a cult, there, there's a recognition of Toronto and a, as a franchise with an NBA culture as opposed to that team that's in another country that I don't know anything about and I've only heard weird things like bad cable or you know whatever like. The idea that the Raptors' reputation in the league is now based in basketball and and not in foreignness is uh, a, it's a, a terrific development in my lifetime as a Raptors fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but we're, we're not. I, I remember, um, you know, the, the 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 expansion tag has truly been lifted. Like it took a while. Like I, I remember when Charlotte came into the league, the expansion tag for them was lifted after like three years. Like nobody even thought of them as an expansion team or, or any of those new teams that come in. But for the Raptors, it's kind of stuck around for a while longer. And and the only guy that I've seen complain about the uh, the, the, the Raptors being a foreign-ish team uh, was Chris Bosh in a podcast where he was talking about how much he had to spend time in customs. Uh, but mm-hmm. other than that, you, you don't really hear about um, – I, I think you said it well. Yeah, I mean the, the Raptors are fully integrated finally. Yeah. But as a player, uh, Trent Jr., like he is a free agent and the Raptors do have a decision to make. There's a sign-in trade option with him too. Um, you know, he, he, is a, he is a shooting guard, uh, similar to Norm. Some people say that, you know, give him three, four years and he'll be what Norm was when we traded him. Fair? Is that underselling him? What do you think? I think that's underselling him. I think in three years he can be better than Norm was uh, when today. Why is that? Uh, I mean, I think his shooting was a lot better. Like, just he had a couple of really big games coming in, and that really surprised me. I was expecting a little something a little bit more tentative, a little bit more. I'm just going to try it to fit in, and he sort of came in like uh, like he felt like he was on, um, you know, similar to to the however many three weeks of the Ken Birch experience where. Both of them felt felt like they got let off the leash when they arrived at the Raptors, and they were just like, "Oh, finally! Like I can I can start to show what I can do." And and they put me. And this happens with franchises, especially when they've developed the talent. That you know you see limitations, and you see you know what what players can or can't be, and you don't necessarily see them able to grow beyond what you what you've pegged them as from the beginning. And so both of them just felt like they came in and went, okay, now I can show what this other franchise wouldn't let me or didn't believe that I can do. And we can show that now. And so uh, a couple of the high scoring games uh, were really a surprise to me, especially because uh, I, I think that Nick Nurse tends to run a, a little bit more complicated of a system, especially on the defensive end, but he seemed to fit in uh, reasonably well. And just the fact that he, uh, sort of felt unburdened, I was like, all right, you know, you really, um, you sort of felt like, uh, like the, the shackles were off a little bit and, and he, he was, he sort of felt like he was running free for the first time in a little while. And, and just that he's so young, 
and and the he demonstrated a lot of um uh enthusiasm is the wrong word but like activity and and um just just uh uh sort of a frenzy of of movement on the defensive end that i was like I don't necessarily think all of that is leading to good stuff, but I appreciate the enthusiasm and he's keen to do stuff. And so we can, you know, we can, like, he's young, we can, we can shape that into being a better defender. But if he didn't care, that would be a way worse sign. He seems to care. He just doesn't seem to know what he's doing all the time yet, but you know, that's uh he's a young guy. So I think he has a, a ton of, uh, a ton of potential and I'd like to see him, I'd like to see him stick around. Uh, yeah, and, and c- comparing him to Norm uh, at, at that age, because Norm came came in, um, in into the league fairly late. I think he was a senior when he got when we drafted him from out of UCLA. Uh, I find that he retains the ball a lot better. Uh, when Norm came into the league, he sort of had two different modes. One was like drive two steps, take the mid range jumper or try to drive to the rim and kind of just throw it against the glass in this awkward way and it like bounced off the rim. And those were the sort of the two outcomes of, of any norm move. With uh, with Gary Trent, you see that he keeps the dribble alive a lot more. He keeps his head up a lot more. He's navigating the floor a lot more and he's a lot more comfortable with the ball than norm was at his age. And he also has this ability to kind of pull up anytime. He doesn't, he doesn't have necessarily two or three spots on the floor, which are of comfort to him, he's willing to do like a slingshot move or, or, or do a mid-range jumper or pull up for a three. So there's definitely more diversity in his in his game than Norm at his. It, it, it's just that I'm always wary. Whenever one of the best things you can say about a guy is he's really young, <laughs> I, I'm wary because everybody's young. You know, I mean, I've, I've heard that tune with like Bruno and all these guys. But obviously, uh, Gary Trent is a different beast because he he, he does have some clear offensive skill that you can see if it's nourished can yield to more than what norm was yes i believe so yeah and you mentioned a guy there when you were uh discussing uh trent another guy who got kind of freed uh we're not going to talk about aaron baines i think <laughs> what has been aaron said about aaron baines I hope he's so far? okay like honestly i i feel bad about what this fan base did to aaron baines <laughs> like i'm sure he's a nice person he's probably he's got a family like people who love him you know, he didn't deserve that. I, I, I you know, and like, I, I promised I wouldn't talk about him, and and I and I will not go into into detail with him because people have just crapped on him for so long that I just feel bad even bringing it up again because that horse has been like flogged and you know resuscitated and flogged again. <laughs> I'm done with him. So uh, let, let's talk about the Kem Birch. I mean, do you recall ever a mid-season signing that has delighted us as much as Kem Birch? Um, uh, who am I thinking of? Uh, Reggie, um, like tough guy. Like, oh, Reggie Evans. Yes. Was yeah. he a mid-season? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, Mark Gasol, and obviously is a is a. Is a I'm not, I'm not mentioning that. Level. I'm talking like a random pickup in midseason, like Reggie Evans. That's a, that's a good yeah, one. You know, the Ty Domi type. Like, I don't know why Raptors fans loved Reggie Evans for the five months that he was here, but it, 
I mean, I think that the our, the fan base's enthusiasm was just trying to match his enthusiasm. I'm not sure I've seen anyone come to the Raptors and be more thrilled to be here. It was like he just made it to the NBA or something for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think we've, we've always been sort of starved of the tough guy forward. Uh, you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's because deep down, we all miss Charles Oakley. And we will accept any clone that sort of looks and does what Charles Oakley used to do. Yeah. So, so, so Ken Birch, though, I mean, but he, he's more than just a tough guy. I mean, he, he showed a, some dimension in his game that certainly I was not expecting. No, me either. It was, Namely? It was incredible. It was like the most, it was so, it was such a delight it, at towards the end, the last 10, 15 games where we, I think as, as fans kind of knew intellectually, like it's probably for the best if we don't, you know, win our way to the 10th seed or whatever, we're, we're going to, we're accepting that. And yet, you know, here's this, like, just a shot of adrenaline and fun for the end of the season, just to have everybody go, oh, well, you know, look at this guy. Yeah. And, and Gillespie, yeah, too. I mean, like I mean both those guys like came pretty much for free, really. And, and and the Raptors have suddenly, at least from a backup center perspective, that spot is shored up next year. Um, and on that note, uh, do the Raptors need to go and look for a starting center this summer, or are are you kind of leaning towards that Kem Birch is going to be enough uh, to, to hold the fort down? I need we need a proper real center. I mean, you know, I I would see Kem Birch ideally in kind of the Montrez Harrell sixth man role, like just come in full of energy. You know, might grab five boards and get ten points in four minutes, and just completely turn a game around. We don't have that kind of, kind of thing off the bench right now, uh, but we de- we desperately need like a real center. I mean, not that he's not, but I, I think what he brings to the starting lineup is diminished. What he brings would be diminished by a place in the starting lineup in a way that it would be maximized coming off the bench, I think. Yeah. And, and there's also a secondary effect to that, I find. Uh, and I think it, it, it involves Chris Boucher, who played the majority of the season going up against bigger guys uh, and doing his level best. I mean, you talk about a guy who plays hard and does not back down. Chris Boucher, he, he, he may be my favorite Raptor after Kyle Lowry, uh, the way he approaches the game and, and how, how tenacious he really is, uh, given his size and given how much he's outweighed in pretty much every single matchup and does not back down. Um, I think it, having 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 a proper bigger center, a, a, a true center, if you will, also allows Chris Boucher to sort of roam around and be a little better fit and not have to worry about getting bruised night in and night out. And you saw how well he played last year, especially offensively. I think his offensive gla- uh, offensive game can even bloom with the addition of another center. Yeah, yeah, I think he's naturally a four. I don't think, especially. There are just too many centers that he runs up against the Embiid's and the Jokic's, and there are too you know Gobert. There are too many like just giants that that he gets killed against. Uh, but I I think I think he he could really flourish as a four. Well, let's talk about Masai Ujiri a little, man. He he is the biggest free agent uh, this summer. Uh, I was talking to uh, Brian Goldfinger, who's our sponsor for uh, for one of our podcasts. 
and and he brought up uh, Tim Laiwiki uh, as as the as that um, flashpoint in time where the fortunes of this franchise sort of changed. And Laiwiki made the decision of you know saying goodbye to Colangelo and and bringing in uh, Masai Ujiri. How important is Masai Ujiri to this franchise, or has he injected enough momentum into this franchise that it can survive? without him going forward and Bobby Webster is enough? Or do we still need the Masai Ujiri backbone to guide us for the next few years? Uh, well, the only Raptors jersey that I own is an Ujiri jersey. Uh, I, I think that he is the single most important member of the Raptors team. And uh, if I had any doubt at all that he was coming back, we would have. I think we would have led the podcast with it. It's the single most important decision to be made uh, for the franchise moving forward. And I, I'm only, I mean, I'm not worried because, um, because of, it, you know, everything that he said in the press conference and everything. Uh, if, if you were about to make a life-changing decision <clears throat> that was going to uproot your entire family, including your young school-aged children... Uh, and the fate of the contract negotiations that you were about to embark on was going to determine whether or not you made that momentous decision and uprooted your entire family to a different city, you would not go on vacation to Africa the moment those negotiations start. There is a man who is fully confident, A, that he is going to get everything that he asks for, and rightfully so, he should, plus just add a 10% bonus to everything that he asks for and be a man who is fully confident that he knows that he's staying and that everything is going to be fine and that he is confident in the vision of this organization moving forward. Otherwise, I think he, we would have a very different sense around the organization right now. And he would be, you know, not chilling in Africa on vacation. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you on that one. Uh, but, but you know, we, we let off this podcast with some uh, Schadenfreude with the with the Clippers. Uh, but the, the main source of joy that I got out of someone else's misery certainly was the Celtics, and and Danny Ainge finally stepping down and saying, "I can't do this anymore." <laughs> what was your reaction to the to the Celtics getting uh, kicked out there? That that was the most shocking thing to me. Uh, for several reasons, partly because Danny Ainge, I mean, maybe, I guess he was nearing retirement age or whatever, but that, that this is the succession plan seemed so totally crazy to me, uh, that you're without seemingly without interviewing any outside prospects or looking at anybody else, just going to promote somebody to a very different job than the one they have now with a very different skill set. Just, just, okay. We'll just like, we'll just elevate you. Never been an assistant GM, never like worked in a front office, any of that stuff uh, to suddenly, you know, but then also the disruption of hiring a new president of basketball operations and that person immediately has to hire a new head coach. It's like that's that's like really kind of the biggest task that the that you have in that job, and you immediately have to replace yourself. That's <laughs> that's such a weird position to put a new hire in. 
Like you would want to hire somebody and be like, okay, everything else is stable. Like everything, everything else is taken care of. You don't need to worry about it. The trains are going to run on time while you figure this out. Like everybody else is cool where we're, everybody's good at their jobs, but to immediately be, be thrust in this and be, oh, oh, by the way, you're on your second day, go find the, the second most important person in this entire organization that used to be, you know, number one just left, you're number one now, go find number two. And I think what's, uh, you know, I brought up Boston, but I mean, if you look at our Eastern competition or the top teams in the East, you know, Brooklyn, uh, notwithstanding, and, you know, uh, Milwaukee, Boston, Philly, none of these teams, none of these teams are scary. They are all, they, they all look pretty beatable by a Raptor team that would, if, if, if it just addressed a couple of points um, this off season. So watching the watching the East playoffs this um, uh, this this spring has made me a little bit more confident in the Raptors' fortunes because if there was any if there was any doubt that crept in that there may have been a gap between the Raptors and some of the other teams. Fine, Brooklyn, I can see just the the talent level there is just off the charts. Yeah, um, there's but, a gap between them and the rest of the league. Yeah, and and, and the rest of the East. Like we we're right there. We're 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 not far behind at all. No, no. Uh, the the crazy thing is that there's just been so much volatility and so much movement amongst top stars that you just can't even you know we can't guess who it's going to be. But three months from now, it seems likely that some major name is going to be unhappy and start to you know, make rumblings about wanting to play somewhere else. Um, you asked me about like who, who are prospects and who, who our competition is in the East and like who I would fear. <laughs> and honestly, the thing that hasn't happened yet, but I think it's coming as a result of this last year is for a superstar or a, or a near superstar, let's say Jimmy Butler or above, uh, who looks at the Knicks and says, I would be the greatest hero in New York basketball history if I could go to the Knicks and bring that franchise back. Mm -hmm. even, Good point. Mm -hmm. Even past a second round, like just, just watching them make the first round of the playoffs and the way that city responded. And I honestly thought that KD might have been that guy where – literally every other decision that Durant has ever made going to the Warriors or leaving OKC anything if he brought the Knicks back to respectability that would cement his legacy as a basketball hero forever and I'm really curious that no one has looked at that possibility and said that's what I want I'm going to take that mantle I'm going to be the one who brings basketball legitimacy back to the Knicks because I think that's uh I mean What's the risk? Like, Melo's going to make the Hall of Fame. Like, if you fail, what really? Like, of course you failed. The Knicks are failures. Every you know, everyone has. But if you succeed, that would cement your legacy forever, more than winning a Lakers title or you know anything else. It's it's. I mean, in the way that LeBron's Cleveland title counts as five titles for the city of Cleveland, probably across several sports, the equivalent for the Knicks 
would just be such a, a it, it, there's almost nothing greater that's sort of available to an NBA player. I mean, I, I, th- I think it should be Kawhi. If, if Kawhi is leaving the Clippers and, and he wants to like piss everybody off, <laughs> I would go to the Knicks. It would, be pretty, it would be pretty crazy. But uh, so I'm waiting for who that is. I'm waiting for the person that's like, I'm going to snatch that ring. I, I, I got to get your take on uh, on this some guard play before we before we sign off. Um, Siakam's out for five months. Uh, I think um, you know he'll probably miss a couple of months of the regular season, maybe a month. I don't. I'm not 100 sure right now. And uh, he did for the majority of the season, off and on. You know, he was one of the Raptors' best ball handlers. Surprisingly, I, mean, I think he's he's made strides in that area of his game. I think he, he had a stretch where he averaged like six, seven assists for a while there. I don't know what he averaged for the season. But overall, his playmaking increased significantly. And what some argue is that that sort of hid the inability of Fred Van Vliet to playmake. Where are you with that one? Um, because because I, I've heard several arguments, this, this, you know, this true one, a, a real point guard, Fred Van Vliet is not... Analyze that situation for me. Do we need a, a, a true point guard? Is uh, sort of playmaking by committee a viable option going forward? Uh, I think playmaking by committee is definitely a viable option, and I think I think it's one of the strengths of how we've of, of the team building that the team has done over the last decade. I think one of the things is that we would rather have someone who is quite good at several important skills then is elite at one skill, but weak is a weak defender is a weak ball handler or whatever. We have really gone out of our way to find well-balanced two-way players and really w- help them work on the, the, the things that they can get better at. And that's Pascal's ball handling and OG's offense and all those things. Uh, I think Fred has the potential I think Fred has potential as a leader, but I, I, we were talking. I was talking to my wife earlier about uh, his game management skills, and and when Kyle isn't there, you know that it seems those are the lessons that that Fred hasn't. Maybe that's just instinctive, and and the Chris Paul gene just doesn't appear in too many players. Uh, but I, I do think it's missing, and I'm I have some concerns about that. Uh, I don't think I think we move the ball well and and uh, the balance of the offense is all good. But um, but I, I do have concerns about Fred as a floor general. Yeah. And, and that's more, a more, than, less than, more than his playmaking, like his playmaking is what it is. That's fine. And, and you know, there are ways to work around that. No, I, I think you, you put it put it really well. And I think focusing on whether he can create shots and playmake for other people is the wrong discussion to have when we're talking about Fred Van Vliet. I think you hit the nail on the head. His game management is the one that's questionable. And it's not necessarily game management, you know, in the fourth quarter, under five, five to go. It's in those stretches, like in the in the, in the early third, when the momentum is sort of teetering in the middle, the game could go, the momentum could go either way. And he takes like two, two bad shots or commits a poor turnover which kind of has a downstream effect on the game. Those are the things that jump out at me when I think of what's wrong with Frey. It's not necessarily his ability to create a shot for another person on the floor. 
Right. And, and the way that Kyle has developed into um, it, his sense of his teammates and his sense of, oh, you know, so-and-so's missed a couple of shots in a row, like get it back to them to, to, you know, get them an easy layup or something just to build their confidence. The way that he manages uh, how other players are playing and, and what they might need, uh, you know, um, if somebody's lagging on defense or, or whatever, uh, Kyle has a, such a highly attuned sense of those sorts of things. But then I, I also think that, you know, he's also developed those skills significantly in the last decade. And I don't think, you know, he didn't come to Toronto as the point guard he is now. So I don't want to be too hard on on Fred's uh, development, and and certainly you know he, everybody has has essentially has improved uh, year over year. Um, but it's but it's the one it's the one thing that I'm concerned about that we have uh, in in some ways taken for granted for the last you know the the the, the Kyle Lowry years. Yeah. Hey, don't worry, man. If Fred doesn't pan out, we got Malachi Flynn there just waiting in the wings. All right, yeah. Yeah. Well, James, man, th- thanks for coming on, man. It was um, a nice chatting ball with you. And uh, good luck me. with the move to Nova Scotia. Brave decision. Uh, kind, of, uh, kind, of, kind of motivating me to make my final move to Costa Rica, which is what I always wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, maybe you're the, <laughs> you're the catalyst that sparks that move uh, at some point in the future. Before you did make any final decisions, I would I would recommend that you consider the time zones because I have very quickly realized late games here start at eleven thirty p.m. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I wasn't anticipating that. Even the early game tonight starts well in another forty minutes. It'll be nine thirty here before it starts. So hey, man, uh, trade offs are everything, it's right? True. I mean, that's 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 what life is. I am. I am podcasting next to the ocean, so there's that. There's that. Is there a lighthouse, though? There aren't. There are many lighthouses nearby that I could visit, though. Nice. What is it about the charm of a lighthouse that that attracts us? Have you ever, have you ever given some thought to that? <clears throat> I don't really know. Uh, I have not discovered said charm myself, I don't think. But when we were looking for places to move and, and we were looking in this area, and so I was just Googling, like, what's interesting you know, 10 most interesting things to do in Pictou County. Uh, of those 10, four were nearby provincial parks with beaches and five were lighthouses. Out of 10, half were lighthouses. If, if I know my uh, Nova Scotia landscapes and history, which I know very little of, but one thing that I that, that reminds me of, um, of Pictou County is apparently they have one of the best pizzas in the world. They have a famous pizza here, which I still have not tried. Okay, so I mean, you know, you know how Nick and Barry are doing this whole chicken sandwich thing. Yes, they're pretty much going to every chicken joint in in Toronto and rating them. Yes, I mean, I would love for you to try a Picto County pizza. I will, and come back on the show and evaluate it for us because I know people from Nova Scotia who rave about it. Would love to get an unbiased opinion on is it actually that good? Because Nova Scotia and pizza doesn't necessarily connect it doesn't it's a not not a natural fit for me uh you may be turned off by the, the uh distinguishing characteristic of the picto county pizza is the sauce which they call brown sauce 
What's what's in it? Uh, it's ba- it's not a tomato based pizza sauce. It's like it's essentially seemingly like reduced vegetable broth. So it's like a vegetable mushroom based uh, pizza sauce. That's not. I think it has some tomatoes in it, but it's not a tomato paste based pizza sauce. Okay, man. I mean, we'll just have to like try it out and then you, you can evaluate it for us, man. Maybe, maybe we'll have a segment on a larger podcast just evaluating the Picto County pizza and settling this one forever. We'll just do regional pizzas across the country and just have different people. Sounds like a plan, man. Excellent. Excellent.